So I would like to continue this um, argument in a different way, of course, uh, by talking about the necropolitics of art. Um, and to start with is actually the same quote that uh, Rosie ended with, by pure coincidence, but I mean, also not, of course. Uh, from Gilles Deleuze, and Deleuze and Guattari, actually, this time. The present is what we are, and thereby what already we are ceasing to be. I'll come back to that. On time and objects. Today I would like to talk about a common problem of the arts, and that concerns the very difficult relation that art has <clears throat> with the present. And we've talked about that last year, but I want to continue this, this conversation. <clears throat> because I think there is something very peculiar about how art reveals itself to us in what we call the present. For unlike many other things we sense or feel or experience, art not so much happens in the present, it is not so much a part of it. Um, by the present, I then mean the social, economical, and political realities in which we are embedded, that organize our world, and that situate us in the here and now. There where its pasts and its futures meet. Art, in that sense, uh, is very different from the other objects that we sense or feel or experience. Because all of these objects, or permanences as Whitehead calls them, are recognized by us because of how they matter to us in the present. It is crucial to keep in mind that all objects, Whitehead claims, occur, or better, recur, because of their relation with us. And in the recurrence, they realize an expandedness in time. Objects connect one event with the other and thus make us say, there it is again. This is the definition of Whitehead of what an object is. There it is again. And thus the event lasts. In this againness, the event lasts. It is how duration works in the recurrence time happens. And that is why we should call objects permanences, Whitehead said. Objects embody the event that they body forth. It's a very interesting relationship with event, between events and objects. Here's a quote from Whitehead. Objects are elements in nature which do not pass. The awareness of an object as some factor not sharing in the passage of nature is what I call recognition. So the strong interdependence of humans and their objects, which claims that it is through these objects that we give form to our world, our time and our space unfold, is further expanded upon by Michel Serre, already mentioned, who shows us that what we consider history is established in how time then traverses us 
via particular objects. Serre proposes to name these objects quasi-objects, since, since their supposed independence, as this lies in the term object, as we now see it, is an illusion. To us, they seem to function as objects, but in the end, they are solely created by us in order to organize our human world. According to Serre, quasi-objects can be placed in three categories, religious objects, objects of war, and monetary objects. And together, these three quasi-objects give form to our world. He says they give form to every society that we've organized over the centuries. They organize our world, they define the present, they confirm its history, and project its future. Quasi-objects exist all around us. When Serre mentions religious objects, we may think of the totem, but all of the icons, all of the things that, asks, that ask for some sort of worshipping, that demand us to idolize them, think for instance of famous people, organize society religi religiously. When we think of objects of war, we may think of weapons, but actually it is all of the things that somehow define one group and threat the other. All objects that organize through war. Anything that in the end practices an identity politics organizes society through war. And lastly, when we think of monetary objects, we may think of money, but actually it is all of the objects that somehow challenge the idea of ownership, which organizes society monetarily. Think of the pen in your hand or the computer. Of course, all of the quasi-objects in the end are mixed. They are all mixtures of these three forms. Serre mentions another important aspect of quasi-objects. Quasi-objects do not move and are not moved. Quasi-objects move us. The totem does not move. We make circles around the totem. And the same goes for weapons and money and for actually all the quasi-objects that make up the present. We humans move according to them. And actually, we move according to them more and more. I'm not telling you anything new that, um, I'm not telling you anything new when I say that religious objects have been able to deterritorialize society quite a bit. Religion in many ways has been one big exodus according to its objects. And the Holy Land can very well be seen as a religious object in that sense. But the same static nature applies to war and capital. Weapons are not primarily used to kill, but to organize an opposition, a we and a they. And lastly, money too is not to be spent, it is about ownership and about continuously organizing the world according to ownership. So that is why Serre would say that these three quasi-objects are in fact supposed to stand still.
<clears throat> stand still in space and stand still in time. So to sum this up, there's a fundamental connection between the objects and time, or between the objects and the fabrication of the present, the slowing down of the present, as Say would say. These objects are created in order to prevent any revolution to take place. Religion, war, capital is created in order to prevent any revolution to take place. But now comes the key to my argument. This does not happen with art. On art and objects. Is there any water in this room, by the way? Is that, uh, okay. I can, I can take it. Sorry. The artwork has always been mixed with the quasi-object with the permanences that we are encountering. In fact, art has always served as a crucial element of it. Religious objects, objects of war, and capitalist objects are filled with art. And they could not have had the same impact if it wasn't for art. But do note that this is the worst destiny for art, to be caught by the quasi-objects, to be petrified into its permanence. For art in the end is something very different. Art does not mirror human existence. Or as Deleuze and Guattari would say it, art does not wait for the human being to begin. It does not function with its space and time. And in more general sense, art is not limited by finitude or not limited to any form of extension. This infinity, by the way, it shares only with philosophy, whose ideas are also infinite. And if you want to read more about that in The Logic of Sense by Gilles Deleuze, uh, there are many moments in which he compares art and philosophy and uh, talks about how it escapes this kind of finitude. I want to return to my opening question uh, what of art belongs to the present? And I start uh, here because I think that one of the key features of art is that it has no presence. Or art itself refuses to be embedded in presence. Its unwillingness to be involved in objects of religion means that in the present, it will not be part of the social realities of the day. Its unwillingness to be part of the monetary object means that it refuses to be captured by the economic powers of the day. And lastly, it as it refuses to be part of the objects of war, it refuses to be part of the political realities of the day. Or, to translate this into a general theory of time, there is no social, economic, and political duration for the artwork. But art does belong to the present. 
It is to be found at its margins. It challenges its dominance. It plays with it. It proposes another history and another future. It traverses it, perhaps. It tells us that the economic, political, and social realities can be deterritorialized through art, and perhaps they must be. So the motto of this talk with which I started, which was um, this one, with which I started, uh, comes from Deleuze and Guattari, as I mentioned before. And now is the time to take a closer look at it. It says that the present is what we are and thereby what already we are ceasing to be. So I want to take a closer look at this one sentence by focusing on two fragments of it. I like close reading, sorry. First, what already we are ceasing to be. The question that arises with me is, in what way are our eyes being opened for the conditions of truth that make up the present? How come that there is this moment where we all of a sudden see how we are lured into an economic, social, and political narrative that in a way blinds us for what is going on? What makes us realize that those stars that we see above our heads in the middle of the night have actually been gone for already 10,000 years? I'd say this is where art and philosophy play a crucial role to reveal this other world, these infinite ecologies that we have been blind to, but which have always already been there. And to realize that means that art has intervened. But as said, there is another element in this quote that needs our attention. And that is actually just one word. It's the word thereby. The present is what we are and thereby what we already, what already we are ceasing to be. I do not think that Deleuze and Guattari here refer, refer to an idea that the present is always already on the verge of slipping into a future, um, as it is always uh, also slipping into the past. Rather, what they are referring to here is the fact that the present is necessarily at risk. It has already started, and it knows it is about to end. It knows that the greatest possible violence, its death, is just around the corner. And here, too, I sense a crucial role for the arts, hence the reason why I named this paper the necropolitics of art. Art with its infinite power to play the present, to traverse its economic, social, and political durations, to be parasitical of its events, its spaces, its times, is also able to become a huge threat to its normalities, to kill them to slash the umbrella and to let in some fresh rain. Of course, art can only kill out of goodness. 
it is this very Spinozist argument that I want to continue with. Art lures us into many different ways of dying, affirmatively reading how all of these little ways of dying are proposing us a way out of the present. And thus, another world and another human being are being explored. We may ask ourselves, what makes these impossible truths that dominate the present survive after all? How can they persist in their zombie state? Of course, the answer is simply, as it is, is as simple as it is depressing. It does not matter whether the things claimed are good or evil. What matters is what relates to the system or how the conditions for truth allow them to be recognized as truth. Art necessarily is a necropolitics at work within the margins of life and haunting us. The times of crisis in which we live make the necessity of this necropolitics more urgent than ever. Only art and art of the highest kind has the power to explore the margins of the present, to question the dualisms that organize it and the blindness that determines it. So between the fourth industrial revolution and the sixth extinction, it is through art that we need to search for different techniques and different strategies that we can ask ourselves what life is, what death, pain, and madness do to it, and how another life is possible. So we call upon artists, curators, and activists to explore in what way the subjects and the objects of the present need to die from art. The age of the Anthropocene, as Rose already referred to it, has to reveal itself as the age of art, as art is our aim at survival. To um, link this to the many things that happen at this festival, not only now, but also in its, in its history, I would like to say a bit more about a project that was um, commissioned also by uh, Sonic Acts, uh, and actually also a, a current uh, ex uh, a film that is now being shown that both deal with um, the Cola Superdeep Borehole. So as part as part of uh, the Dark Ecology Project, um, sound artist and filmmaker Justin Bennett created two projects that concerned uh, the Cola Superdi borehole. A sound walk organized on the site uh, focused on waste, um, which uh, due to the extreme weather conditions will never disappear. This means, for instance, that the notes uh, from all sort of scientific experiments are still scattered around the whole site, together with all forms of debris. You can see it over here. Machine parts and other traces of the high-profile research location that this once was. Time only seems to have messed up things here, but wasn't able to make significant changes to all the material as it was simply too cold for all sorts of microbes to survive. 
Above all, of course, the sound walk invites us to listen to all the noise uh, that is at work at the site. For although the seismic uh, listening station that surrounded the borehole was closed in the 1990s due to the death of the Soviet state, which meant that the funding for the scientific experiments stopped, the borehole is still there. It is still alive, interacting with its environment, expressing all of its sound. And it keeps on talking whether or not anyone is interested in hearing it. Um, so there's another movie at this moment being shown, I think outside of this room, by uh, Alexis de Stowe, which is called uh, Phantom Sun, uh, in which we also see this landscape, this graveyard of the 20th century, um, the invisible landscape of progress, modernity, and 20th century blindness. I uh, advise you all to go and see it. It's very well done. So now I would like to pay more attention to the documentary that uh, Justin Bennett made from this, uh, and on, uh, which followed up on this location. And the reason is that uh, both the sound walk and the movie by the Stope convincingly uh, still starts from the idea of the borehole as a quasi-object expressing in the first place the power of 20th century modernism, science, intelligence, and the Soviet state. Uh, but the documentary does something different. And for your interest, the borehole is still, as you can see on this slide also, 12 kilometers deep. It's uh, arguably the deepest hole that we created in the earth although there are now boreholes which are slightly deeper, but they go not in a straight line. They are in search for uh, materials which, in the end, find themselves elsewhere. Um, and it's interesting to note that uh, the U.S. also um, uh, started a project similar to this, creating a deep borehole for scientific research. It was called Project Mohole. <coughs> um, it's, they started in 1957. It was abandoned by Congress in 1966 because of the increasing costs and because of the bad location. And the project only reached 3.6 kilometers. So that's not too much compared to this. Uh, why I think the documentary is, is uh, actually doing something else than the sound walk and also than the movie that we can see outside is that the documentary, uh, in a way, kills this history of the Soviet states and um, plays with the kind of uh, modernist heritage that we can see um, uh, at this location still. The documentary uh, kills this history and revitalizes a, revitalizes a wholly other borehole, the life of the borehole that was already there, but that the quasi-object obscured. The documentary shows us a life more earthly, yes, less human and less static. So the interesting figure in this documentary is the protagonist, Victor, who claims to be the last geologist on the scene 25 years after the experiment stopped. Victor continues his work, 
has dropped microphones deep in the borehole and makes uh, this is the stove. This is the and makes amazing drawings of what goes what goes on in this borehole. Uh, the sound that happens in the deep. Obviously, Victor is the scientist gone mad, or better, uh, the scientist turning sane again. Released from the state, released from the pressures of state science, uh, which are the others telling him how to conduct his experiments, telling him how to implement the laws of nature, as we came up with them. Victor is the scientist open to the earth again in its many ways of realization, its different forms of duration. Victor is the true scientist who is able to declare, as Michel Serre put it, I have attempted to think the object anew. I have attempted multiple objects in space and mobile in time, unstable and fluctuating like a flame, relational, end of quote. Victor recognizes a very different borehole. The recurring noises from the deep body forth a life that the state does not care about, that his former colleagues dismissed, that plays no part in the present. Victor is not distilling the seismic mov movements that would indicate nuclear tests from neighboring states. Victor is not interested in the laws of nature, in discovering the next addition to the law of physics. Victor listens and looks and sees the other borehole behind the borehole. Moving away from state science makes Victor, of course, the true scientist. But he is also the true artist. Remember, again, Deleuze and Guattari stating that art does not wait for the human being to begin. They gave us the example of a bird in the Australian rainforest who cuts leaves, makes them fall to the ground, and turns them over so that a paler backside contrasts with the soil of the woods, creating a stage for the song the bird intended to sing. Deleuze and Guattari say that this bird is the true artist, and it is in this tradition that Victor, the character in the documentary, is also a true artist. A voiceover, a series of images, a series of unrecognizable melodies, harmonies, and rhythms, all occupied with the borehole, giving it the stage to express the sounds we never heard and the images we were blind to, that is Victor. Victor is opening our ears and our eyes to a life. I would like to listen now to a few of the fragments of this. Location five, borehole. So, um, is this it? This is all that's left. A poor, sorry sight now. Just a rusty old iron cap. Stand on it. Go on. Can you feel it? That you are standing over a 12-kilometer hole. 
Make sure you don't fall in. Can you explain why it was shut off exactly? Down there, under your feet, are forces that you cannot imagine. I told you what's down there already. Rock so hot that it is not really solid. Fissures carrying water, all sorts of gases. And the gases, they could bubble up. Yes, and they could be pretty toxic. It reminds me of the story about the Oracle of Delphi. Uh, <laughs> of course, yes, Lepithia. Well, maybe staying too close to the hole makes... I just want to show you through fragments here, of the sound. try to cut it off gently. <laughs> it's impossible, of course. Um, so what have, what have we, what kind of borehole was revealed here? What kind of temporality was at work? That is what I'm interested in. And how is this, uh, the re releasing of this borehole that we've heard, that we just heard, something radically different from what it was before. I think there are plays a crucial role. <clears throat> and that is why I um, want to return again uh, to the issue of time, uh, how time works differently this time. For um, in the opening quote, and the present is what we are and thereby what we already cease to be. Uh, there's something happening which is crucial for what happens here, I guess. Uh, 
Uh, the present is the realm of the quasi-object. It concerns the economic, social, and political realities of the day. Uh, the present is about the slowing down of time, about keeping the institutions in place. So the question I started with is a very urgent one, a very activist one. Yeah? What of art belongs to the present? And it has a lot to do with what Michel Serre already says, eh? that in the opening quote uh, at the, my introduction, where uh, he was saying that uh, the institutions that are still in place now are so radically outdated, have so little to do with what happens in the world right now. And he gives us many examples in his recent publications. Uh, the best one is probably uh, Thumbelina, uh, uh, in which he shows how there's a, there's a new generation which, uh, which thinks and works and acts completely differently from what is still the dominant um, uh, present in contemporary society. And it's time for us to open our eyes for kind of what's, what's already going on in that sense, what's already going on with this new generation, the digital natives, but also what's already going on in the world, the fact that all of the changes due to uh, um, ecological movements uh, have uh, just not been noticed up until now uh, in many ways. So that is something that Michel Serres is very concerned about and I think is uh, very important to link that to how art works with this. Um, so let us return to Victor. I think the, the, the figure of Victor is in that sense very important. Uh, for Victor, especially uh, since he uh, kind of continues the work he actually does not do anymore. Uh, Victor surely has no present. Uh, Victor belongs to a different past and to a different future. Uh, though he hasn't changed position for the last 25 years, uh, Victor is traversing the present. He traverses it and does not understand its finitude. Approaching the object, dismantling it, he recognizes a different past and a different future. He explores the earth that was always already there, but that we were blind to. He recognizes the finitude of the old borehole, the borehole created by the Soviet state, and revealed its new life, a life more fraternal and more beautiful an infinite life untouched by the economic, social, and political powers of the present. Uh, 